Hebrews chapter 10. Before I uh, read uh, from God's word, let's pray together once again. Father in heaven, uh, we do love you very much, and we ask that you would help us to love you more and more. We pray as the word is read, as the word is preached through your servant today, we pray that we would have hungry hearts. For those of us who are not hungry for the word, I'm asking right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would give us hunger to hear from you today. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us clarity about what is important in life and how we are to live. You have given it to us through the scriptures, through the Bible, through the written word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. Well, would you like to join me in the last paragraph of Exodus? Yes? I'm going to have to listen to that on the recording later and try and figure out what was meant by that. For the last couple of weeks, uh, Mike and I have been looking at the golden calf incident 
which is sandwiched right in the middle of lengthy discourses about the tabernacle. The first discourse is God giving the instructions to Moses, and then the second discourse is God obeying exactly what God had said to him about how to build the tabernacle. Right in between that, you have the golden calf. So we talked about the tabernacle three weeks ago. We've been looking at the golden calf for the last two weeks, and here we are today at the last sermon in this long series through Exodus. We're going to be starting Philippians next week, and we'll be doing that for several months. So that should be fun. You can start reading that throughout the week and prepare your heart to hear from the Lord from a totally different part of Scripture. But here we are in the last paragraph of Exodus, beginning at verse 34. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Now, at this point in the story, in the account, the tabernacle has finally been built. And prior to this moment... Moses had had what he called a tent of meeting, and it was outside the camp, and he pitched it outside the camp, and this was a place where he and God would talk to each other. Uh, But now the tabernacle has been built, and the tent of meeting has been moved from outside the camp. It is now right in the middle of the Israelite camp, and we have an account here of God then settling into his place right in the middle of everyone there. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. I'm going to read through the end of the book here, and uh, I'm going to make just a couple of comments as we go. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We've seen this cloud several times before. You may remember it at the Red Sea. Uh, This cloud many times has been there as a visible indication that God was with them. And of course, God is never limited to any point in time space, but he does want certain people at certain times to know that in a special way, I am with you. I want you to know deep in your bones that I am with you. And this is what God is doing here by manifesting his glory through this cloud. Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And that's interesting because... Previously, in that tent of meeting that was outside the camp, uh, Moses would go into the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord would hover above it. So Moses was in and God was out. But now that the tabernacle has been built according to the exact specs that God had given to Moses, now all of a sudden the glory of the Lord is so intensely inside this tent of meeting that Moses is out. Um, He's basically saying, hey, I live here. My tent is right here in the middle of your tents. And I am incredibly holy. So you can imagine Moses standing there observing this and all of the Israelites surrounding this event and and watching this happen. Quite a a pivotal and important and crazy moment, probably one that uh, generations talked about afterward. Uh, People who were there or you had a grandpa who was there and they remember what that was like after it had finally been built and they had that narrow escape through the golden calf situation and now all of a sudden God is there living in their midst. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. This is basically setting us up as a reader for what is about to come in Leviticus, but especially Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, how they're going to go about wandering through the desert. Um, And this has to do with lordship. It has to do with submission. It is very clear that God is in charge of this journey. 
If God stays, well, where else are we going to go? We need to be right. We want to be as close to God as we can. He's got to be right in our midst. And so we're not going anywhere unless God moves. And if, and if it looks like God is moving, well, we're going to pack everything up and we're going to follow him. So this has to do with God's lordship over them. It is clear that God is leading them. This is a lesson that unfortunately has not quite sunk in yet for the Israelites. And we'll see uh, various rebellions and numbers in Deuteronomy. But it is still clear here to us as a reader that God is in charge of this whole thing. And his leadership has a goal. Uh, they are not meant to be desert wanderers forever. Uh, they are not Bedouins, but God is leading them to the land that he had promised to their forefather Abraham. And then finally, verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all those journeys. Because it's just a few verses, I'd like to just read them uninterrupted here now that I've made a few comments and it's clear to us what the passage means. Beginning of verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What I'd like to do here is look at a few pieces of theology that we can get from this paragraph. What does this paragraph teach us about God? What do we learn about God from this paragraph? And the first thing that we see is that God is holy and glorious. In verse 35, you see that Moses wasn't even able to go into the temple because God's glory was so intense that it prevented Moses from being able to go in. That word for glory has to do with praise and honor and respect. In fact, it literally means heavy or weighty. And we know this feeling when we see somebody important or famous. Uh, rock stars have a little bit of glory. Movie stars have a little bit of glory. People screaming and yelling when they get out of their cars or if you could take a picture of them when they're out and about or something like this. World leaders have a little bit of this glory, even bad ones. There's a, there's a heaviness that comes into a room when a very important person walks in. Well, God is the king of kings. He is the most important person uh, in the universe, uh, and he made people, and so, of course, he is more glorious than people, and he shows us his glory so intensely here that even Moses has to stand back, and this is more intense than even the burning bush situation at the beginning of uh, this whole uh, Exodus account. Uh, where he was told, you got to take off your sandals because this is holy ground, holy ground. I think that those two events, the burning bush situation and then here, the last paragraph, are bookends for Exodus. Um, it starts off with Moses standing before the burning bush, and it ends with Moses standing before the tabernacle. Both of these very unusual and intense uh, and memorable uh, demonstrations of God's glory. The first time he's standing there at the burning bush, uh, he's by himself. And then here we are at the end of the story with hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people surrounding him and observing this with him. Think of everything that happened between those two events from the burning bush. Think of everything that happened in Moses's life and in his heart and in his attitude. Think of everything that happened to Pharaoh, all the things that happened to the Israelites between these two bookends of Exodus. 
Uh, God took a man who didn't really want to lead and shaped him into a type of Christ. Um, God defeated his enemies. He forgave serious sin. And here at the end, we are all standing in awe of God's glory because of what has happened throughout the pages of Exodus. So glory is an important Bible word. It's an important attribute of God. Another important Bible word is holy. And that word literally means separation or withdrawal. Um, In fact, if we used it for something other than God, we might even use a word like alien. In other words, God is extremely different from ordinary. God is very different from us. Uh, The God of Mormonism was supposedly once like us, and he improved himself and became a God. And we too can do something like that if we... Uh, improve our lives, we uh, can also become gods. Well, the book of Exodus shows us a very different reality, that God is different and God is other than the people he creates. Uh, He uh, he is different than any other so-called God. He commissions this reluctant Moses. He yanks out a reluctant and fearful people from Egypt. He defeats Pharaoh and all the demonic powers behind Pharaoh. We cannot become like that. God is holy and he's different. The temptation in Eden was that we could become like God. And the problem in Exodus here is that God is so different. Uh, we, we, can be, we just cannot be like him. And he is so different uh, that the relationship between God and people is horribly strained. Not only are we human and he's divine. And so there's this huge chasm in terms of just being, uh, but also we are sinners and he is not. So how is this relationship going to work? This is one of the problems of Exodus. God wants to be with his people. He has promised to fulfill certain things for the descendants of Abraham. But how is this going to work? Because God is holy. He just about wipes them out more than once throughout Exodus. But we also in Exodus see the solution to the holiness problem. God cannot make himself less holy so that he can associate with us. And so he makes us more holy so that we can associate with him. And he does this through the cleansing of sin by substitutionary atonement. So these words are very important. Glory and holiness, very important attributes of God. They show us why salvation is necessary and they show us how salvation is accomplished. Why is salvation necessary? Well, because God is holy. And we have this relational chasm between God and mankind, and we've got to have a solution to that. So salvation is necessary because of God's holiness and because of God's love. He has this loving holiness. He wants to be with unholy people. And so salvation is necessary. Salvation is also accomplished because of God's glory and holiness. Through his glorious power, he defeats enemies. And through his glorious power, he brings out a reluctant people. I think that's very important because in the last few hundred years, Western civilization has been dominated by this secular humanist worldview that overestimates human potential apart from God. And so we have theological debates about how free are we to make an independent choice for God. But these ancient Israelites were redeemed against their will. Telling Moses and Aaron to leave Pharaoh alone, it is one of the dominant themes of Exodus that God did it. It was a very public display of glory, both in defeating his enemies and also redeeming his people. And so my salvation is not just an expression of God's grace. 
but it is also an expression of heroic power in terms of what he does in my heart so that it is possible for me to love God. So, of course, God is worthy of honor and praise and more glory because he does stuff like this. King David in 1 Chronicles 16 says, Save us, O God, of our salvation and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. You would have liked it in those days last, wouldn't you? That's just the normal thing. That's what happens. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Like if you're standing in front of David and he says something like that, how can you not say, amen, that'd be awesome. So this morning we're asking, what do we learn about God from this paragraph? And one thing that we are reminded of, something that we have seen all the way through this book, but which comes out very powerfully here as Moses isn't even able to go into the tent of meeting, is that God is holy and God is glorious. But we also see another thing, not just that he is glorious and holy, (laughs) um, but we see that God is present with his people. It's an opposite complementary truth that God is present with his people. These are his special chosen people, and he wants to dwell right in their midst. He wants his tent to be right in the middle of everybody else's tent. It's like we're all going to go camping, and it's going to be great. And on the way, I'm going to put my tent right in the middle of yours. This is an important thing to understand about God. Yes, he is glorious. Yes, he is holy, very different from to the point of almost being alien from us. Certainly not the same species as we see in some religions that God is the same species as us and we could be like God. That's a ridiculous thought in the book of Exodus because he's extremely different. So that's true, but he is also near his people and with his people. The Lord's prayer is beautiful because it combines all that theology. The first uh, line in the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's this beautiful combination of these truths that he is our father. He is this loving father that makes us his kid. And yet he is hallowed. He is deeply reverenced. He is glorious, holy, other than most of our spiritual trouble, I think, comes from underemphasizing one of these two attributes, either his holiness or his nearness. There's a great section in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. I want to read to you just a little page of Pilgrim's Progress because it's a, a wonderful reminder of God's nearness. In this particular scene, it's all an allegory of a spiritual journey. And in this particular scene, Christian, who is the pilgrim on his way Uh, to the celestial city, he runs into this terrible valley, valley of the shadow of death and the valley of humiliation. And a bunch of different things are represented here, but in the valley of humiliation, it represents uh, just this uh, terrible kind of depression that many of us fall into, probably all of us fall into from time to time, where you start having these terrible thoughts and you're not sure what's going on. It's a kind of a morbid place uh, where things are very, very confusing. And so it's described here, Um, 
Thus he went on a great while, yet still the flames would be reaching towards him. Also he heard doleful, doleful voices and rushings to and fro, so that sometimes he thought he would be torn in pieces or trodden down like mire in the streets. This frightful sight was seen, and these dreadful noises were heard by him for several miles together. And coming to a place where he thought he heard a company of fiends coming forward to meet him, he stopped and began to muse uh, what uh, had, he had best to do. Sometimes he had half a thought to go back. Then again, he thought he might be halfway through the valley. He remembered also how he had already vanquished many a danger and that the danger of going back might be much worse uh, than for to go forward. So he resolved to go on, yet the fiends seemed to come nearer and nearer. But when they were come even almost at him, he cried out with a most vehement voice, I will walk in the strength of the Lord God. So they gave back and came no further. And a couple of other disastrous things happen to him as he's walking through this valley. And he's just overwhelmed. He's disconsolate, we're told. You just can't console him. He's, he's overwhelmed with morbid thoughts and terrible thoughts. And I think probably all of us, especially if you're of any kind of age, know what that's like. Middle of the night or some phase of life that is just so bad and so terrible that the thoughts are very unclear and confused. Theology's all confused. We feel almost physiologically sick in our stomach. Uh, and we're just not sure what to do. So listen to what happens here. When Christian had traveled in this disconsolate condition some considerable time, he thought he heard the voice of a man going before him. And this turns out to be his friend Faithful that he ends up hanging out with for a few chapters later on. But Faithful's a little further along than he is. And Faithful shouts out, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear none ill, for thou art with me. Then he, Christian, was glad and that for three reasons. First, because he gathered from them that some who feared God were in the valley as well as himself. So what he hears here is somebody quoting a scripture, and he realizes, I'm in this terrible situation, and he feels pretty alone. And that often happens to us when we're depressed. We feel very isolated and abandoned. And all of a sudden, he realizes, you know what? There's another Christian just a little bit further down the road than I am. And that makes it a little bit better for him. Second, he was glad uh, for that he perceived God was with them, though in that dark and dismal state, and why not, thought he, with me, though by reason of the impediment that attends this place, I cannot perceive. In other words, there's an impediment to the place. He can't sense God. He doesn't feel God. He feels like, you know, he's praying and he's talking to a brick wall and, and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't have some warm, fuzzy experience of God, but it's just a deep knowledge that God is with him. And the third thing that makes him feel glad when he finally hears somebody ahead of him read a scripture, it says, for that he hoped, could he overtake them, to have company by and by. So he went on and called to him that was before, but he knew not what to answer, for that he also thought himself to be alone. And by and by the day broke. Then said Christian, he hath turned the shadow of death into the morning. Now, morning being come, and this is interesting, it's an allegory. So somebody quotes a piece of scripture. He gets his thoughts straightened out. Other people have been through this. God is with me. And if I keep chugging this through, then I can do this with some Christians and stuff. So now all of a sudden, scripture gets into his mind and morning breaks, it says. Now, morning being come, he looked back, not of desire to return, but to see by the light of day what hazards he had gone through in the dark. So he saw more perfectly the ditch that was on the one hand and the quag that was on the other and how narrow the way was which led betwixt them both. Also now he saw the hobgoblins and satyrs and dragons of the pit, but all afar off. For after break of day, they came not nigh. 
Yet they were discovered to him according to that which was written. He discovereth deep things out of darkness and brings out to light the shadow of death. So here is just one scene where we are reminded as fellow (laughs) pilgrims going through life that can be very difficult and we've all had to travel through the valley of the shadow of death, an allegorical place where things are just terrible and we're not sure. And yet right in the middle of that, we are reminded, I am with you. In fact, that is God's name, Emmanuel, God with us. The last words of Jesus Christ to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He told them earlier in the book of John, I will not leave you as orphans. Um, He put us here even this morning to say things like Psalm 46, 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's very important to have God with us. We don't always sense his presence. We don't don't always have a, a warm, fuzzy or ecstatic religious type of experience. But God promises to be with us no matter what. And his presence results in exactly the provision and protection that he wants for us for our journey through this world. His presence makes it possible for relationship with him. And as Christians, we have much more of God's presence than the ancient Israelites did because we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. I don't have to get up out of bed and poke my head through the tent and look out there and say, okay, God is still with us. But I have his presence in my heart. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That was Romans 15, 13. As Christians, we know and we believe no matter what's happening, no matter what ridiculous thoughts may be coming into our minds, we know by reading books like Exodus and even Pilgrim's Progress, that God loves us and that his presence is with us and makes all things possible. But remember the purpose of the Exodus. We want to take this just a bit of a step further. His purpose in Exodus is to bring a people out of slavery to worship him in the promised land. And so his presence is purposeful. It is not simply to just be with us, but to be with us as he leads us safely home. We're told that wherever the cloud settled, the people pitched their tents and stayed in that place. And whenever the cloud moved, the people packed up their stuff and followed wherever he went. In other words, God is in charge of this journey. He's not simply with them because he loves them, but he is with them with purpose. He is with them in such a way that he is bringing them out of slavery and bringing them to somewhere, a better and lasting place. And so he goes with us on this journey. This is true for Israel, and this is true for us as well. God still has a plan to bring us safely to a promised land that we call heaven or the new heavens and earth or however we refer to it after Jesus Christ comes back, removes our sin nature, and brings us to a safe forever right in his presence. God is still making a people for himself. Some of you are fairly new to church, just now beginning to understand the gospel for the first time. He is still gathering people. He is still with his people. He's still leading and protecting and providing his people. And the reason is because he made us and he owns us and he loves us. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. you are not your own. You were bought with a price. We belong to him. Jesus said in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. 
We forget that God cares about us this much. We forget that he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and so we feel abandoned by him sometimes. We make decisions before asking his permission. We forget that God is still with us and God still leads his people. And so the book of Exodus reminds us of what God is really like. He is not far off. Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And Psalm 43, verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Well, there is so much more in this little paragraph, this great conclusion to the book of Exodus. So much to see, uh, infinite depths to explore. But hopefully these little ideas here stick in our minds that God is holy and God is glorious, but God is also near with his people in a purposeful way, leading us and making us into a people who will follow him safely all the way to heaven. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14. Hebrews 11, the great chapter, talking about people of great faith that have gone before us. And this uh, writer of Hebrews says, people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to, to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let's not forget these things. This place is not our home. God is preparing our home for us. We are strangers here, and he is present with us, and he promises to be with us and to lead us safely through if we will follow him. Now, Bible writers are continually looking back at this great book of Exodus, looking back with awe, looking back with gratitude. Old Testament writers, New Testament writers, prophets, apostles, they look back to these stories because they shape our view of God in very important ways. As we read through Exodus, just a few things came to my mind just reviewing uh, this last year or so that we've spent in this amazing book Um, And a few things happen, I think, inside us as we study a book like Exodus. And one of those things is that we have an increased awe for God, an increased fear of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 24, and the Lord God commanded us to do all these things, to fear the Lord our God for our good, always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Something about fearing God, understanding that he is holy and glorious and incredibly powerful understanding who he really is increases our fear so that we can follow him more closely so that we can worship him more deeply another thing that happens as we read exodus is increased confidence increased confidence see the law shows us how penal substitution works that we all deserve the death penalty for any small sin even if we committed that sin when we were 12 years old and And yet we find out as we go further in our relationship with the Lord and read more of the Bible that it wasn't just a sin that happened a super long time ago, but I sin every day that I have a sin nature and that is deserving of death. And yet God created this substitution process where a substitute dyer in the Old Testament, it was an animal. It was a lamb. It was a bull, whatever it may be. But in the New Testament, we see why Jesus died on the cross. It was because of this system of law that was put in place. And this gives us confidence that confession actually works. 
We wonder, you know, does God like me? Am I on good terms with him? And yet the Bible is extremely clear about how to be on good terms with God and to be completely clean because he created the process and it works. Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's assurance. That's assurance of salvation because when God says, I'm gonna set up a system and, and here's what it's gonna look like, we don't all just hope it works, but God is the one who set it up. So we have increased awe, we have increased confidence and gratitude for penal substitution. And finally, as we look back on Exodus, we have an increased desire to follow him, to be faithful while we're wandering around waiting for the final destination. Proverbs chapter three, verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So as we finally close this book and open another, may God bring these stories alive in all of our minds so that we will know him better, so that we will follow him more closely as we wait for him to come back for us. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, you are glorious and you are also with us. That's an incredible paradox. It's an incredible set of opposite truths that you are holy and yet with us. And we praise you for making all of this possible through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. God in heaven, I pray that you would make us a faithful people who put our trust in you, who put our hope in you. And we pray that you would come back for us soon. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.